What is up, Redemption Church? Nice. You guys are good. All right. Hey, before we get started this morning, there has been something we have been really pushing here for about the last week, week and a half, uh, and it's tied even to uh, 2013 and what we really want to be about as a church. One of the big things for us is making 2013 the year where that we as a church, we are desperately seeking after God, right? We want God to visit us on Sunday morning in powerful ways. We want God to work in our homes, in our lives, in our job, in our neighborhood, in our schools, whatever it is. And so we know that one of the big things about seeking God is praying, right? When God's people come together and they pray. And one of the big things we've rolled out here recently is this whole five-day, 24 hours a day for five days kind of prayer week. And that's going to come March 10th to the 15th. And so what we need is we need you, right? Um, the church is the people. It is the body that really comes together. And so we wanted to make this week of prayer coming up uh, just a big thing for everybody to be a part of. And so there's two ways you can do this. Uh, you can either be a part of it by coming down to the offices. We're going to have a special uh, office set up just for prayer. It's just going to be your little spot to do that with. Uh, it's going to be a very cool environment, everything else, and so we would love you to do that. Or, if you can't make it down to the office for whatever reason, to, to pick a time slot in that week and just at your house or your office or whatever to, to kind of commit to pray for that whole hour that you pick. Now, the way that you pick a slot is you go to our online social community, the city, and uh, you can just pick that there. So if you go to the city, sign up, you're going to see, hey, there's the link to it, and it's going to give all the dates, all the times in the day that you can pick. Right now, it's about half full, maybe not quite half full, and we want everybody involved. We, again, I, I can't stress enough when I say we need you to pray. We need you to pray. And it's not because there's any big thing on the horizon with the church. There's no big decision being made, anything like that. We just know that we want to be a place that, that more than being clever or creative or compelling or whatever else, we want God's presence to be true for us. And we believe that God's church praying is the key to that presence. And so uh, if you've not signed up to the city, you can do so out in the commons. We have um, some, some ways for you to connect online out there. So you can utilize that or you can go home and do it if you're already on the city. Go on today and sign up for spots. We want to fill them all up. And so uh, we would love to see you be a part of that because prayer does, in fact, uh, change things. Uh, if not our heart, certainly the environment too. So uh, we'd love to see you doing that. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and pray together since I'm talking about prayer. Let's go ahead and pray and see what Jesus has for us today. Jesus, I thank you for prayer. I thank you that your word says you are the mediator between us and your Father, you, because you've come, you lived, you died, you rose, you now make it possible for us to come and say, Father, here's a prayer, Daddy, here's my need, Dieters, draw me close to you. And, and may we really utilize that. May we love the avenue of prayer. May we love to talk to you, ask for big things and seek you in big ways. We want to be a seeking church, and from that, we want to be a church that's used by you used radically and powerfully in a way that is looked at down the road in a couple of years we go man look what god did and we can look back and go man 2013 was the year we were seeking passionately and you showed up big that is what we were looking for and so work mightily in our presence work mightily in your word today as we continue to look at one of the most powerful books of the bible and i pray that you will prepare us prepare us to receive what is true what is simply true and from that boy we are mobilized and changed so we thank you for what is true. Prepare us in your great name, Jesus. 
Amen. Well, this last weekend, I uh, had a great weekend. Uh, actually, my weekend started Thursday afternoon. We loaded up the family in the car, headed up to the Vinterton's cabin. They have a cabin up at... Uh, uh, Stevens Pass, and so we went up there, and it was just kind of a man weekend, you know, so like Friday, I snowboarded all day, very cool, uh, that night ate steak, that was very manly of me, so I love that, uh, the next day did some, uh, you know, snowmobiling, and ate beef jerky like all good men should, and uh, it's just a great weekend, you know, and then Sunday rolled in here to church, had this opportunity to preach God's word, which was awesome, went home after that, shot my gun on the back porch, burned trash in my yard, that was very manly of me, um, so great weekend all the way around, I mean, very just like a masculine weekend, and so how do you capstone such a masculine weekend? I watched the Academy Awards, all right? So, um, <laughs> nothing more masculine than that, all right? So, and here's the crazy thing. You know, by the end of all of that, I was very worn out, very tired. I literally went to bed at about 3.30 uh, last Sunday because I was so worn out from, from everything. And so I told Ellen, I'm like, hey, just, you, you should go to the concert with honor. So they went to some concert in Seattle. My other kids were doing stuff. So it was just me. So here's the real tragic part. I watched it by myself, all right? So... <laughs> Not with my wife, which I could see, like, you know, I'd be like, I'm just an accessory to this crime. But no, I actively chose, and it's the first time I've ever seen the Academy Awards. I've never watched it. Um, I'm like, okay, what's it all about? Let's see. I've seen, like, little bits and snippets. Never watched the whole thing. And literally, I'm just like, all right, I'm going to check this out, right? And, and so I'm watching it, and it was interesting as I saw the different uh, awards for screenplay and cinematography and director and actor and actress and all of that, um, I, I started to realize that within those movies, there was this unifying theme in some of the, the most uh, watched, the most wanted, the most celebrated movies of this last year. In fact, uh, and it was weird too, because I'm, I'm, I'm going... Well, it's funny because those movies are pretty different, but they have the same underlying focus. For example, I'm watching going, all right, there's Django Unchained, which is wow, all right? Um, crazy, obnoxious, weird, right? All the way to Les Mis, right? Which is this completely different kind of spirit, genre, focus. But I'm like, huh, they have a similar theme at their heartbeat, at their core. And I started thinking about other movies. I mean, think about some of these movies such as Toy Story 3, very similar to Django Unchained, really. Um, or The Lion King, or Star Wars, or Groundhog Day, or Iron Man, Warrior, Rocky, Narnia, Dark Knight, A Wonderful Life, Apocalypse Now, Goodwill Hunting. Don't you see the commonality between all of them? No, what there is at their heartbeat, at the center of their story, is a story of redemption. Redemption. Right? Every single one of them. It doesn't matter if it's for a child, for an adult. It doesn't matter if it's G-rated or R-rated. All of these stories have this unifying focus, this longing to tell the story of redemption. And so I went to the International Movie Database and I thought, I wonder what the number one movie of all time is according to their database. I wasn't shocked to find that it was Shawshank Redemption, which is considered to be the number one movie according to their website. And so I looked at all of that and I thought, man, why is that? I mean, why is it that we constantly want to tell this story of redemption? See, I believe it's because what is true to the human condition, what we long for in our soul and at our core, is to be redeemed. To see something that is celebrated in redemption 
for redemption, by redemption. I mean, that is just something hardwired into the human condition. We spend millions, even billions of dollars every year to see stories that celebrate redemption. To read books that celebrate redemption. Many people every year go to counselors and read self-help books because they want to find redemption. Oftentimes, we even in our own lives labor very, very hard to seek a new direction because we are looking to earn redemption. And so no matter what we want to debate, you know, like you sit down and you talk to social scientists and they talk about, do we have a good nature, a bad nature, are we born good, are we born bad, everything else, all of that debate doesn't matter because at the core, what every human being seems to agree on, whether actively or passively, whether they're drawn to it or they can state it, is that we have a longing for redemption outside of us, imparted to us. We long to see that story of redemption where the lesser than, the weak person, the whatever, is, is changed, is taken care of, is loved, is given grace. That is the beauty of redemption. That is the redemption we seek. And I would say even to those of us in the church where that word is central, so central, it is the name of our church, right? Of all the names we could pick, we knew we wanted Redemption Church. We wanted to highlight this glorious truth, this strong, invading grace of God, redemption. We wanted to do that. But you know what? Part of the reason for that is because I find often in the church we struggle. We struggle to really know what it means to be a redeemed people. Right? We struggle to know it in our mind and in our heart. We struggle to know what it is and who it flows from. I mean, we could pass the test. Who redeems? Jesus. But what we struggle with is to really uh, treat each other as a redeemed people. What we struggle with at times is to earn our own redemption or make other people earn redemption to make us happy. Right? We struggle with these issues. And so if there's anything that we need to own... It is the powerful truth of redemptive grace, and that is Paul's heart. Paul is a man that understands the power and the magnitude of redemptive grace. And so, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1, as we are looking at redemptive grace, the redeeming grace of God. Now, if you were with us last week, we started this whole series, the series called Grace, looking at grace in the book of Ephesians, right? It's a part of a larger series, looking at the whole life of the church of Ephesus over about 60 years. And, and Paul sets out to write this book that's unlike any book in the New Testament. It's the only book that he has time to just put on paper what matters. It's not conditioned, it's not based on a problem or circumstance, he just wants to write. And chapter 1, verse Three through verse 14 is Paul's testimonial opus, right? It's this 202-word sentence. It is dense. It is packed. It is laden as a worshipful constitution, right? If you wanted to figure out what's the constitution of the Bible, here it is right here in one singular sentence. It is the constitution. It is a hymn of Christ. It is a hymn of God's people, crying out for all that God has done, thanking Him for all of His goodness and grace bestowed on us. And you need to read it that way. Read it as this, this powerful song saying we are in Christ. We are in Him. 
We are in the beloved. Paul is going to make much of this phrase throughout this entire thing. And as you read it, and I said this last week, don't read this section as some cold, terse, academic treatises on doctrine from a dude in a bow tie and a tweed jacket that is just monotone and dry. Because that's not it. This is Paul exploding, right? I mean, even in the original language, at times he's kind of tumbling over his words. He, it's almost like the pen can't go fast enough. And God's this and this and this, and he gets his words even a little bit kind of bobbled in the way grammar works because he's just overflowing. He's just like, it's so abundant, it's so rich, it's so vast. I mean, this is why when I preach Ephesians 1, you're going to see me getting really excited because that's the tone of Ephesians 1. Excitement, passion, vigor, love, joy, gratitude, passion, unbelievable passion. That's Paul to us as Christ's church. And so he does the introduction. I'm Paul, an apostle by the will of God, written to the saints in Ephesus, right? Grace and peace to you. And then he explodes, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Again, the big idea. You're in Christ, I'm in Christ, we're in Christ, all's in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Just that opening volley right there is powerful. It's the glorious battle cry of the outpost church. It is a declaration of ancient grace. Right? Before you took a breath, before your parents decided they wanted to have a sweet little you, God says, in my grace, I choose you. Before you were you, he said, I want you. Before you were you, he says, I desire you. I choose you to be in me. That's to be a huge motivator. Before your family wanted you, Jesus wanted you. That should draw you into him. That should cause you to go, I want more of this Christ who wants me for me to be found in him. See, that's the ancient electing grace that Paul talks about, right? And so he celebrates that in verses 3 through 6, but then this predestining grace that he celebrates becomes this other facet of grace. It hits the human plane of existence. It goes from before the foundations of the world, and then it hits the earth. It slams into the conditions of a darkened world, and it does so in redeeming grace. How do we know that? Verse 7. Paul says, in him we have redemption. Right? So he's made much of God chose, God predestined, God adopted, God blessed, and now, because Christ has come in him, we also have redemption. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, right, or this word redemption, he's, he's anchored in a very specific way of thinking, right? So he's a good Jewish boy. He's grown up in a good Jewish school. He has good Jewish theology. He knows his good Jewish Bible, right? He's got all of that nailed. And so when you think about redemption as a good Jewish boy, well-schooled in the Old Testament, you instantly go back to Egypt. You go back to the Exodus. You go back to Israel being in slavery, Right? So they're enslaved by the pharaohs, they're building bricks, it's woe is me, it's very bad. 
right? And then what happens is God says, I want to redeem Israel. I want to free Israel. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell them that they need to take their homes and make sure that they are covered under the blood of a lamb. I am asking that you sacrifice a lamb. You put it over the doorpost of your house. It's going to create this uh, kind of cocoon of redemption. And then on a particular night, I'm going to come into Egypt and I'm going to pour out my wrath. But every house that is covered under the blood of a lamb, I'm going to pass over that. I'm going to just not pour out wrath. It's going to be under the blanket of my love and grace, under my protection and forgiveness. Right? But everybody that doesn't have that blood on the doorpost, they're going to be under wrath. And so God comes that night, the Israelites have put the blood of a lamb over the door, and God passes over those homes. No wrath. Under love, under covenant, in grace, right? And so they're redeemed. I mean, that's the focal point. That's the understanding of God passing over, not giving wrath, but showing grace in the Old Testament, right? That's how he did the redemption. Now, you fast forward 1,400 years because that stuff in the Old Testament, uh, that stuff in, in Exodus was meant to be kind of this picture of something else to come because then what happens is for every year, 1,400 years worth, people are killing a lamb, killing a lamb, killing a lamb, killing a lamb. Every year you're doing this and putting blood. Again, it's this very tedious task because it's, it's not complete, but it's an image of something to come. And so after these 1,400 years, 1,400 Passover celebrations, there's this unsuspecting carpenter from Nazareth. And he enters the town of Bethany. And he's met by his cousin, John the Baptist. And John says 13 words that will forever change the world. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? You probably read that plenty of times. And you probably thought, oh, how sweet, Jesus is a lamb. But the way they would hear that would go right back to the Exodus. They wouldn't think, oh, he must be real docile, he must be real fluffy to hug. He's a lamb. No, when you hear lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you instantly go back, if you're a good Jewish boy and good Jewish girl, you go right back to the Old Testament and go, oh, wait, that's about one that is sacrificed, one whose throat is slit to cover the sins of others, to cause the wrath of God to pass over, to envelop one's family in the cocoon of grace. That's what the lamb of God does. In other words, the lamb of God is redemptive to atone to give up self for another and in this case it isn't just one time once a year it's not just for one jewish family with one particular lamb no this says for the sin of the world behold the lamb of god see jesus understands that this is his mission Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom, a redemption for many. And understand, when Jesus comes to do this, um, it, it, it doesn't come on the scene like he shows up in Jerusalem and just gives the forgiveness wave. Oh, you're forgiven. Right? It'd be nice. It'd be nice if he could just roll in and do what we do. Somebody wrongs us, you know what we do? Hey, I forgive you. 
It's very easy, very cheap. There's no exchange of anything. They wrong us, we give them forgiveness. There's no payment. Sometimes we try to make people pay. That's wrong of us. But for us, usually forgiveness is just a word. Right? It's just the affirmation that we're reconciled. There's no sweat, there's no tears, there's no blood necessarily in us forgiving. But for God, it's a different gig because here we're talking about divine forgiveness. We're talking about personal forgiveness. Because it's a lamb, it's substitutional forgiveness, sacrificial forgiveness. It is atonement, which literally means at one that one must be given to make us and God at one That's how Jesus is a ransom. That's how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's very particular, and Paul understands how particular it is. He gets right to the core of it in the next part of the verse. He says, we have redemption in Christ through his blood. I mean, Paul gets right to it, so there's no mistake. So it's not just, well, couldn't God just wave his arms, say we're good, give us a thumbs up, say, come on in, no big deal, no harm, no foul, I get it, I'm big, you're small, you make mistakes, I'm easygoing. No, Paul says it's through his blood. Three words of dense, dense meaning, because what it means is that God actively and willfully chose to self-suffer so that we could be his. To self-inflict, self-punish, self-judge, so we could be His. Right? Of all the ways God could do it, right? Of all the ways, God says, you know what? I want them so badly. I desire them so badly. I have chosen them. I predetermined that I want them. I want to adopt them. And so to do that, because I'm still just, I will punish myself. I will suffer myself. I will inflict myself for them. God says, I want you so bad. 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 I want you so bad that I will do this in my grace. That's how powerfully He wants us. And this is the thing that Paul wants us to get. Do you know how bad God wanted you? Do you know how much he values you? Do you know how potent that grace is? Because that's what it took. His blood. His sacrifice. His death. It's personal. It's passionate. It's powerful. Cleanses and frees and restores and creates something new. But it's not cheap, it's not easy, it's free for us, it's expensive for God. It's a millisecond of us making a decision that says, I bow my knee to Christ, but for Christ it was suffering all eternal wrath for our offense. There's a big difference between how God instigates this and does it, and how we respond to it. Very different. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, I love this scene to to really capture it says, with his own blood, right? His own blood. He doesn't put the weight on us to perform or have certain duty or be acceptable. It's with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Once, right? He secured our redemption through a single act, right? So from that second forward, I'm secure, 
no, no matter how many sins I do, I don't know over the course of my life, I just turned 42, I have to imagine I have millions and millions of sins in my account. Millions. Because sin is any attitude, any action, any affection that is against God. And some of that is very moral sin, some of that is very immoral sin. Some of it is addiction, some of it's lust, some of it's shame, some of it's lies, some of it's pride, some of it's arrogance, some of it's legalism. All of it. All of that was in my account. And Jesus says, I want to secure Matt's redemption forever through my own blood, given by me willfully and personally. Verse 13 says, Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ash of young cows could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. He says, but just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Look at the difference between verse 12 and verse 14. With his own blood for our own sins. I choose to rebel and he chooses me. I choose sin and he chooses to give his blood for my sin. That is huge. That's why Paul celebrates. That's why he explodes in praise. Now, notice there, it doesn't just forgive. Right? It doesn't just forgive. It says it purifies our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship God. I mean, the, the, this forgiveness, this redemption, this grace should change our motivations. It should take us from being resistant to God to gracious and grateful for what God has done. I mean, that's what it's designed to do. Right? But when we start here in Ephesians 1, Paul wants you to understand, here's what God has done for you. As of yet, he hasn't put any expectations on what God expects of you because he wants to start by you knowing what God has done for you, and from that, you do for God. But if you're doing for God without a focus on what God has done for you, then you're going to do it in your own strength. You're going to become self-righteous. You're going to become judgmental. You're going to become a legalist. And Jesus is going to say, that breaks my heart. Because it's not in you it's not in me that we do anything. It is in him that we do everything. Because it's through his blood. Not through my sweat. Not through my toil. Not through my goodness. Not through my obedience. Not through my tenacity. It's through his blood, right? It's how it works. He was engorged with my offense. He was engorged with my rebellion. He was engorged with all of my trash. So that I could be redeemed. In fact, the weird thing, when you read the Bible, is how Jesus did this. He conquered sin by becoming our sin. That's so weird. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that. He who knew no sin became sin. It doesn't say he became sinful. It says he became sin. So he says, all right, let's take a look at Matt Boswell's account. All right, millions and millions of offenses, right? As soon as he cried out with air, he was offensive somehow, Right? You really saw it too. Me, mine, pop, right? And then uh, stealing bubblegum and lying to get out of trouble. And then I got into my teen years and we won't talk about that. And then I went into my adult years and there's plenty of stupidity to go around there too. Right? I've been everything from uh, foolish to legalist. All wicked sins. All of them. And Jesus decided to conquer all of my sin by becoming my sin. Not by becoming sinful, but becoming my sin. That's how he did it. More than that, not only did he take my sin, but he conquered the curse by becoming our curse. 
So he takes on all of the sin, and then he looks at the Father and basically says, all right, now crush it. Crush it in me. You are just, Father, so justly punish all of Matt's sins that he would get all hell for. He goes to hell eternally apart from me, so now you must punish all of his hell in me. Only a divine being can do that in another divine being. And so all of hell, all of my hell, all of the cursing that I earn becomes a curse on Christ. And then he conquered death by dying our death. I mean, another weird thing. It's like, hey, how are you going to take out people who, who die? I'm going to die. So they, 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 they don't have that kind of curse and sting any longer. I mean, such a different way, such a backwards way, such uh, I didn't come to be served but to serve sort of way. That is the nature of redemption through his blood because that satisfies God's righteous requirement for us in him. For us, but in him. We have to be found in him, live in him, rely in him. Everything is in him. Our standing is in him. That's how we stand. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says this, I love it. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has made us friends of God. Understand the scene. We sometimes think, I wanted God, and then God came along, and I'm like, I kind of want that. No, we were an intervention. We were enemies of God. So God's over here, and I'm like, I'm going this way. I'm going this way with morality, this way with immorality, this way with legalism, this way with other religion, whatever it is, but I'm going this way. And God comes in the form of Christ, comes up behind, wraps us, and says, I love you, I want you, I adopt you, I take you, I'll suffer for you, I'll take all the wrath for you, but I'm taking you and taking you this way. That's grace. That's redemption through his blood. That is the friendship that he creates when we were still enemies. When we didn't want it. I love that because again, it's so not of us. It should motivate us every day to be a gracious people, a humble people, a weeping people. When we see people, when we see people not living in the context of this. Because it's so not us. What it's designed to do here is change both our status and our focus, right? Our status was now you're in him, you're not outside of him, you're not in Adam, which is death, you're in Christ, which is life, but then from that man, you're motivated to seek God, to please God, to have joy in God by walking in God, that's the focus, right? Because Jesus has bought you by his blood. And when he buys you in his blood and by his blood and by his sacrifice and through his love... It results in the forgiveness of our trespasses, as Paul says. All right? And we all have trespasses, right? We're really good at it. We're good at the spectrum of trespasses. We, we need forgiveness because sometimes we're weak, sometimes we're arrogant. Sometimes we're proud and sometimes we're fearful. Sometimes we're cowering and other times we're cruel. Sometimes we're self-condemning and then other times we're self-justifying. Sometimes we fail in morality and then other times we fail through morality. We need forgiveness. We need a Redeemer who rescues us from sin, who reclaims us from offense, who releases us even from our own self-judgment, our own trespasses. We need it all. 
Because sometimes even in this, um, we start thinking, oh, I, I'm in Jesus, but, now, Jesus, but now, but now I need to pay for some of this on my own as we move forward. I need to subsidize some of the account. And yet here, it's 100% in him, 100% through his blood, 100% by his forgiveness. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this verse. I mean, we're, we're going real slow. We're going to hit four verses today. Wow, we're like a snail, all right? So, but slow it down and look. Notice the plural nature of this, trespasses, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses, not just the principle of sin in our life. Every one of our sins, every one, count them up, Right? Things you don't even know you've done that are sinful. There's things that I do that are terribly sinful that I think are righteous. Because I'm so cluttered with pride or I'm so cluttered with irritation or anger or whatever. I think I'm, I'm just. Well, even those trespasses, he forgives. But I also want you to notice that there, there's a thing about the tense in this. Um, it's the idea that, you know what, uh, it's called a perfect tense, which means he has at one point in the past forgiven all of your trespasses and you experience that moving forward, right? I want you to get that because I want you to get in your mind that every offense you have done, forgiven. Every offense you're doing right now, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you're repentant or not, your position in him, you're forgiven. Every offense you're going to do, already forgiven that's the nature of the cross that is the nature of grace past present future in him through his redemption through his blood we have forgiveness of our trespasses so what we find with this radical grace is that forgiveness has like two angles sometimes we want to put it into this one category it has two angles it has kind of the technical aspect and then it has the personal relationship aspect in fact, in 1 John chapter 1, you see both. You see the technical, you see the relational. 1 John 1, starting in verse 7, it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I want you to stop right there. John, when he says, walk in the light as he is in the light, that is um, a synonym for the gospel. That's a synonym for salvation for John, right? Jesus is the true door. Jesus is the true light. And so if you've come to the light, if you've come to the door, according to John, it's because you believe in Christ. It just means you believe in Christ. So if we believe in Christ, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now what's cool about this is, again, there's that perfect tense in the original language, which means that forgiveness of sin is constant to your life. Constant. Because you're in Christ. It's like being under the waterfall of forgiveness, Right? Because like I said earlier, there's going to be a lot of things you never even realize are sin, that I don't realize are sin. If I had to actually recognize all of my sins to be forgiven, I will fail. I will sin more and not recognize it than sin and recognize it. I need the perpetual just deluge of grace over my life and because of Christ to have that. That's my position. That is my status. Perpetually forgiven. As soon as I do it, it's gone. Washed away by the tens of thousands, washed away. Why? Because the blood of Christ cleanses me from all of my sin. The blood of Christ has forgiven me all of my trespasses. It just does that. It's automatic. It's autopilot in Jesus. But then there's a personal aspect to this. 
And that's what John gets to in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When John says that here, now he's bringing out the relational aspect. In other words, you know what? Your status, you're cleansed. But if you constant, consciously engage in any kind of activity that's rebellious to God, outside of God's plan, heart, design, desires for your life, you're consciously like, you know, like I see you're there, but I'm going to go here. There's going to be a relational breakdown between you and God. You're going to want to kind of be in the dark and pretend like God doesn't see. God sees, and you know he sees, so there's this distancing effect. And that's where John says, well, hey, let me just tell you, if you confess that, if you say, God, I know I'm going this way, but forgive me. He's faithful and just to forgive you in a relational way. In fact, the difference between kind of status and relationship is exactly what I experience in marriage, right? So Ellen and I are bound in a covenant. We're just married, right? But there are times when the Boswell wagon has wheels that get a little loose, right? So we get in arguments, we get in disagreements, whatever else, it gets a little bit wobbly. Now when it's wobbly and we're kind of struggling to communicate or we're kind of irritated at each other, nobody says, all right, we're not married right now. Only once we reconcile, are we married again. No, we're married. We're in covenant. Our status is married. But when I say, Ellen, forgive me, that was not kind of me, or I was impatient, or I was just being selfish, that restores the truth of the status relationally. Right? Both are true. I'm in relationship, I'm in covenant, but when I'm in right relationship, I really experience the full joy of that covenant. Well, that's what John would acknowledge. That's what Paul would acknowledge. We are cleansed in Christ. End of story. But relationally, we confess to experience the full measure of the joy of that relationship. That's how it works, and that's who we are. And all of it comes back to because Jesus took our sin. Took it all. Now, can this be abused? Can this be exploited? Frankly, it can. Frankly, it is. By every one of us in this room, all the time. I'm going to be candid. We exploit grace perpetually. Because we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. We get bitter, we get angry, we get irritated, we don't share the gospel when we should, we don't worship like we should, we have fear, we have frustration, we have fatigue, we have all these things that need perpetual forgiveness. All right? Sometimes we start to think we're pretty good, forgetting that we're only good in Him. Only good in His forgiveness, only good in His grace. He does it all because of grace. Verse 7. This is according to the riches of His grace. The riches of it. Not because of grace, but according to the riches of his grace. In other words, what he's saying is, I have this incredible abundant grace, and it's from that abundant grace that I abundantly give you grace. It's not like God says, I've got a billion dollars of grace, but here's two bucks of grace for your life. He says, I've got a billion, trillion, I mean, I have an innumerable amount of grace, and I give it to you. That's why when you are encountering my grace, I change you, I adopt you, I make you an heir, I give you all things, all blessings, and all ways. You're going to sit on the throne, you're going to reign as a co-heir with Christ. I mean, that is huge. You call him daddy now. That's abundant grace. That is an overwhelming, abundant, rich grace. That's why Paul literally, he's tumbling over his words in the original language. It's overabundant, super stupidious grace. He's like, I don't even know words. That's where he is at when he says, according to the riches of his grace. So good. And think about it. The nature of this grace, in grace, he was bound so we could be free. He was beaten so we could be healed. He was rejected 
so you could be accepted. He was mocked so you could be celebrated. He was shamed so you could be elevated. He was lowered so you could be risen. He died so you could live, and he lives so you will never die. That's grace. Lavished grace by his blood as redeemer because he wanted you. He valued you. That's abundant grace. Romans chapter 5 says, For what, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, right? So the law comes and says, don't throw rocks into the Grand Canyon, so you throw one. Don't touch the wet paint, so you check for tackiness, right? The law just says, don't sin, and we go, oh, I suddenly want to. That's where Paul gets that. It says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace outpaces sin. Grace changes the context and conditions of sin. That does not mean, hey, because we're under grace, go sin. What it means is, hey, guess what? We all sin. We need to be under grace. We need to be under grace. That's why it's the riches of His grace. For Paul, it's a grace that does three things. First of all, it's a grace that forgives. We've already nailed that in this text. Forgives, right, through His blood. For Paul also, though, it's a grace that focuses. In Titus, it says, The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Grace gives you what you need to obey. Not perfectly, I don't want anybody starting to think, I'm a perfect, obedient person. It's not going to do that. It makes you soften to the Spirit of God. It makes you wanting of what what, what God wants in your life. That's what it does. And the more you press into God, the more God is going to reveal that in you. So grace focuses. But also grace frees. In fact, if there was any um, parallel I would make to the word grace, it would be the word freedom. Grace is all about freedom. And I'll tell you, as soon as I say that, it makes some people nervous. Grace is about freedom. How is grace about freedom? Well, Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, Do not not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So you use your whole body now as an instrument to do what God says is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirement of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace freedom now here's the thing about freedom take take it to the american value of freedom right we value our freedom it's the big thing that we're known for as a country um here here's the trick about freedom here's what's true freedom in the united states of america can be exploited for the worst things can be exploited for the worst things right say hey i'm free so i can be a pornographer I'm free so I can do what I want. I'm free so if I want to live with seven people and, and, and just we just have a weird little commune thing of sexual exploitation, I can do that as long as they're of right age. I'm free. I'm free to drink myself into oblivion soon. I'm free to smoke as much weed as I can manage in Washington State. Free. So freedom can be exploited for the worst things. But we don't take that and go, oh, because freedom can be exploited, let's get rid of freedom. Freedom's dangerous, so let's disband freedom. In fact, uh, too much freedom means too much crazy sin. So let's start controlling so there isn't as much freedom. We're leery of that. And the reason is because we know equally 
that freedom can be leveraged for the absolute best. Freedom makes it possible for people to innovate and be creative and do amazing things and help other people. Freedom is an engine for great things. It's got a dark side to it, sure. But really, the positives far outweigh the negatives. And it's the same with biblical grace. Biblical grace is freedom. Now, can somebody abuse that? Can somebody exploit it? Of course, it's grace. Anybody says, oh, no, 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 there's no such thing as cheap grace. You can't exploit grace. Yes, you can. It's grace. But you shouldn't. You can, but you shouldn't. Because it should mobilize, it should inspire, it should encourage, it should free us, it should create gratitude. For we want to do what God wants us to do. That should be the heart. It frees. And it is an amazing grace. Ephesians 1, 8 says, It is a grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This doesn't say because we have grace in our life, we then have wisdom and insight. This is all a declaration of God. This is one of the coolest little verses in this whole thing because literally what it means is that, you know what, in all wisdom and insight, God knew exactly who you were and still chose to give you grace. In his perfect wisdom, in his perfect insight, he could look at Matt Boswell and say, that guy is never going to be this and he's always going to be that. He's going to struggle with these things and he's going to be arrogant here and he's going to be fearful there and he's going to have this mess and all this stuff. And you know what, I still want him. In my wisdom... In my perfect knowledge, I choose him. How many of us uh, meet somebody and go, this person's a train wreck, I choose them. Right? Especially for like a spouse, right? You go on a date, they say, here's all my baggage. And you go, that's excellent, I gotta have that. Right? I gotta have that. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Except God does it with us. He does it with us, right? That's his wisdom and knowledge. And he does this, verse 9, to make known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of God's will? Colossians chapter 1. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. So Paul, as much as he says, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, that's your position, he then turns to say, and Christ is in you, so you can have a right practice. It's a both and. And it's an assurance, man, we will, we will stand and share in his glory. Again, this goes back to what's the nature of your adoption? Son, a daughter, you share in his glory. And this was always the plan. This wasn't some quick, uh, hey, the world fell apart, quick, come up with the reaction. This was always the plan, verse 9b, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. A literal rendering of this would be on the basis of his good pleasure, right? which he designed with Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. It's like you have the Father and the Son getting together before the world is ever even created. And they go, we're going to create, and in that we're going to create redemption. And in this redemption, this is how it's going to go. And what they're doing in the plan of redemption, the mystery of God's will of us being in Christ, is they're celebrating each other's character in the plan. Right? So the, the Son looks at the Father and says, oh, I love His justice, I love His holiness, I love His perfection, I love His commitment, I love His love. So in this plan of redemption, I want to celebrate all of that in the Father. 
And then the father looks at the son and he says, man, what I love about the son is sacrifice and humility and resolve and mercy and worship and strength. And so I want to celebrate that in the son. And so they come together and come up with a plan that celebrates all of their attributes perfectly and completely and says, that's how we'll redeem, to the glory of our grace, to the glory of our goodness. The goal of this whole thing, verse 10, to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Right? Just as much as Jesus made it all, holds it all, redeems it all, reconciles it all, subdues it all, rules it all, judges it all, He will finalize it all. All of it. And so we as God's people, we stand and we understand that the cosmos, it has suffered dislocation and rupture it has you experience it every day as you get tired fatigued you fight with your spouse you argue with your kids you see crazy things in the world you turn on the news and your heart slumps you know you're in a world that needs redemption and restoration but god sent christ according to the plan according to grace to redeem all things in him and so what we need to do every day is just focus and tell ourselves what is true What is true, right? What's true? Here's what's true. Jesus has, right? And I just want you to focus on what he has done. Jesus has dethroned Satan. And Jesus has disarmed the powers. And Jesus has defanged death. And Jesus has destroyed sin. For Jesus has dispersed grace, forgiveness, and redemption. He has. Jesus has donned the kingdom of the gospel. Jesus has drawn you by name for adoption. And Jesus has deployed the church to change the world. And Jesus has declared the one day he is coming again for you and me and us. That's what he's going to do. And so when you have, amen, amen. So when you have a bad spell, when you have a sad day, a hard time, when you face some kind of monumental trial, a season of temptation, you're facing an hour of struggle, when it seems impossible or improbable or insurmountable, when life is closing in, anger is welling up, you're feeling overwhelmed and hope grows dark. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into your bathroom. I want you to look yourself in the mirror. And I want you to tell yourself what is true. That Jesus has. Tell yourself, Jesus has blessed me, chosen me, predestined me, adopted me, redeemed me, graced me, forgiven me, empowered me, and promised to me that one day he will return. And all I need to know is what Jesus has done so that from that I can do. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we own your word, your truth. I pray that we don't grow fickle and think it's all about us or in our strength or that we have some leveraging point in this world. We know that it's all in you, by you, through you, to you. As we have learned in the last couple of weeks, Father God, you love us so much you want us. What we learned today, Jesus, you want us so much you died for us. And the next week what we get to learn is that you wanted us so much, Holy Spirit, you come to dwell in us. May we be people of a triune God who are chosen in you for love and family and victory in your name. Amen.